Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This time we dust off the SITREP crystal ball and do some gazing to see what 2023 has in store. Where might British forces find themselves being sent? And will they have enough people to do the job? We should always remember that war is a great recruiting sergeant for the armed forces and our army right now is not at war. But war continues in Europe. Is there any hope for peace in Ukraine this year? And what's it all doing to President Vladimir Putin? There are increasingly people disproportionately drawn from the military, from the security forces and so forth, who essentially did not have a problem with invading Ukraine, but had a problem with just how damn badly it was done. And Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark will take us on a whistle-stop global tour of the hot spots we need to watch. Happy New Year, Mike. Yes, Happy New Year. It will be another humdinger, I predict. 2022 was one heck of a year and a lot of people were saying good riddance. How do you reckon 2023 will pan out? Well, there's no shortage of uh, spring-loaded traps, as I call them. You don't know if a mouse will run over the trap and set it off. You can't predict the mouse, but you can see where the traps are. In the Sahel, in West Africa, uh, certainly in Israel, in relation to the Palestinians, and also in relation to Iran. In Iran itself, Turkey, Syria. Uh, You can see spring-loaded traps on the India-China border, probably less in Taiwan than you might imagine. But it certainly Mm. is a spring-loaded trap. And even in less likely places like the Eastern Mediterranean. So everywhere I look in 2023, I see spring-loading of lots of traps, quite apart from what's happening in Ukraine and the effect of that on Europe. And Mm. we're waiting to see how many 2023 mice run across them. (laughs) Mike, we'll have a chance to go through those traps, uh, those geopolitical traps a little later in the programme. Let's start with the challenges for the UK's armed forces in 2023. It appears they are facing fresh problems maintaining their strength. Thousands more people are leaving the forces than joining them, and the rate at which people are leaving is going up. It increased by 17% over the last year. It's not an entirely new phenomenon, but it's reversed gains made over the last couple of years. The latest official figures show in the year to October, the strength of the forces, the number of personnel, fell by more than 3%. We can talk now to Paul O'Neill, a former RAF officer who served as the head of defence people strategy at the MOD. He's now director of military sciences at RUSI. Paul, hello. Um, How concerning are the numbers and the trends? Hello, Kate. Thank you for having me. I think inevitably, when you're failing to hit your workforce requirement, it it provides a concern. And the concern is exacerbated when the forces are small. When you've got a large armed force, then having some people missing isn't so much of a problem. But as the armed forces reduce, and we see, of course, the plans still in place for the army to reduce by about 10,000, then it becomes much more of a problem. So I think it's a concern, but it's worth probably contextualizing this, I think, a little bit, that what we're doing is we're using the post-COVID period and a one-year snapshot of a problem. And and I would argue, if you go back to 2019, the situation isn't significantly different to that which we saw back in that period. So there's always going to be a danger of using an outlier as a baseline. It's not good by any means, but equally, I would say this is not historically anomalous. Mm. Mike Clark, do you think any of this is having an impact on capability or does it just put more pressure on those who stay in? 
Oh, it's undoubtedly having an impact on capability because, I mean, those who stay in may feel that they're just not getting enough time in rotation at home and for their own development in the force. Uh, and also, we expect the armed forces now to do a wider range of things than ever before. And we've seen that increasingly in the last few years. So undoubtedly, numbers do matter. When the force gets smaller, everybody gets a bit more stressed and strained. And Paul, um, in terms of departures, in the year to October last year, there was a 17.4% increase in those leaving the regular armed forces. What, what's driving that increase? I think a lot of it is linked to this point about COVID, but also the biggest driver usually for armed forces recruitment and retention is what's going on in the civilian labour markets, which is obviously where the armed forces draw their people from and they lose their people too in most cases. COVID, I think there's been some pent-up demand. People, in terms of voluntary outflow, weren't leaving the armed forces in such numbers whilst we had all of that uncertainty about COVID and employment. So we're probably seeing an increase in outflow, which might have happened in the last two years, but didn't because of COVID. But we're also seeing in the UK, notwithstanding the recessionary pressures, it's not impacting on the labour market. The armed forces are blessed with some fantastically well-trained people who are currently in high demand by the civilian labour market. And so mm. pressures to go are high. Part of it might depend on what happens with the armed forces pay review body award for this year. Uh, and of course, the last pay award was before the much higher rates of inflation were announced. Mm. So a lot of it will depend if the civilian labour market stays good then outflow will remain high. If the civilian labour market contracts, then we'll expect to see greater retention. And Mike, recruitment is also down. Why? Oh, recruitment's down in general because the armed forces are seen to be uh, not operating at the moment. I mean, Afghanistan, I think as Richard Barons was saying earlier on, those sort of operations are great recruiting sergeants for the armed forces because people see the armed forces are out there doing things which they find that they'd like to experience themselves and be a part of. And so recruitment's down for that reason and because the, the domestic labour market has got plentiful jobs and some good salaries, certainly in the private sector. And that recruitment, I think, picture will change as the climate in Europe darkens in the next couple of years with uh, the war in Ukraine. And I would expect there to be an upswing in the tendency to recruit as we find ourselves in more insecure times as the effects of the uh, Ukrainian war play out. And Paul, um, if you could put this into context from your time within the MOD, how does it look to you? As I say, in many respects, it's it's taking us back to the period uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, even if you look at the Armed Forces Continuous Attitude Survey that came out in May of this year, then there's general decrease in satisfaction, there's general concerns about pay, but not particularly anomalous. There might be something more structural in the context of what armed forces offer. And I'm aware that there's a review called the Haythorn-Thwaite Review into armed forces incentivization, which is looking at financial and non-financial elements due mm. to report in the spring of this year. And I think that will be a really quite important report uh, for the armed forces. And how do they try to ensure that they remain attractive? Because as they become more technologically advanced, the people they want to recruit and retain will be the people that commercial employers also want to recruit and retain. And so the war for talent, as it's been called, will, I think, hot up. Yeah, that war for talent that you mentioned, um, when, you, when you say that, that bar COVID, we've sort of gone back to what the situation was before then. 
we see the same kind of problems, don't we? The, the experience of service life, life the, the headlines about accommodation, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that that is at the basis is what the problem is and the rest of it will be decided by the labour market and just add a new element into the mix? I, I think you're absolutely right. And again, the principal reason why people give for leaving the armed forces is the impact of service life on the family. So that absolutely is a major reason why people exit. Not so much an issue for recruitment, but it's definitely an impact on the retention side. But Defence has got to get to grips with this, because whilst it may be, in Hertzberg terms, a hygiene factor, not necessarily a motivator, then it's certainly something that demotivates. And there's a lot of work that the MOD does need to do to try to ensure it remains a relevant and attractive career for people in the future. And there's Um, a lot of positive, I think, because it does recruit people and trains them magnificently. It it helps with social mobility. But how does it get that message across and not alienate the people it, it recruits? And on that note, let's just talk about the Army's new recruitment ad campaign. We usually see one at this time of year. The new video shows soldiers in helicopters and on the ground using satellite equipment to locate a car stranded in deep floodwaters. Then rescue a mother and her baby. I've got you. It ends with the message, the army is more advanced than ever, but nothing can do what a soldier can do. Um, Paul, it's had some flack on social media for focusing on civil contingencies in the UK rather than actual military operations overseas. What do you make of it? I suppose the first thing to say, Kate, is the army probably isn't looking to recruit a 50 plus year old ex-RAF officer. So whatever my views of it are, (laughs) then (laughs) I'm probably not the target audience. (laughs) Um, There is certainly a suggestion that young people today are looking for meaning and purpose and a sense of social value. And I think the army's advert tries to tap into that. A lot of the commentators are people like me who aren't the target audience. But I would be a little bit nervous about ignoring the warfighting component, particularly as we see what's going on in Europe. There's a danger of trying to turn ourselves into a social organisation and not retain the USP of the armed forces, which is that of fighting. Indeed. Uh, Mike, that message, nothing can do what a soldier can do. We, we spoke about that recently, about the false impression during troubled times with strike action, etc. that the armed forces can do anything, sort any problem out. Uh, doesn't this uh, strengthen a rather unhelpful narrative? Well, it does in a way, but I'm not sure it's so unhelpful because I think that advert in particular was going for the emotional payoff, which is to say, you know, talk about war in Europe is all a bit abstract at the moment if you're a young British man or woman thinking about the forces. But there's an emotional payoff to rescuing a mother and a baby. And we are invited after that lovely little comment, you're all right now, I've got you. We're invited to think about the emotional payoff, how rewarding that would be to be able to do that, going in with the backup of the forces, rescuing a mother and a baby. I don't mind that. For the modern, younger generation, maybe that emotional payoff is more important than the patriotic kick of serving your country. Maybe you actually want to give yourself uh, the sense that you are training to do something that is immediately and humanly useful. Well, let's look ahead at what 2023 has in store for the men and women of the forces. Uh, Paul O'Neill, what do you think? I think it's going to be a busy year. As Mike started this, uh, this is a rather nice analogy of the, the mouse traps as well. Um, we've seen with the NATO strategic concept a, a desire for deterrence uh, by denial and therefore persistent engagements. The, the use of the armed forces deployed will be important for that within Europe. Uh, the tilt to the Indo-Pacific 
is going to be important and we can expect within the context of the Royal Navy in particular and the Royal Marines that we might see more deployments there. So my sense is it's going to be a busier year than this year. Uh, and we will, of course, continue to sustain through the air bridge and other things supporting to Ukraine. So I think mm. a busy year, but potentially also very rewarding. Uh, Mike, what about you in terms of doing the actual job? Can we predict anything about the operational demands for the services? Well, I think the operational demands will um, all be in, involved in really uh, General Patrick Sanders's operational mobilise, particularly for the army. The army has got to be able to mobilise to go to the continent and fight a war uh, that we aim to deter, but to be prepared to fight that war in the next you know, one to two years, and which, by which we don't mean an outright war with Russia, but we may mean combat level operations and the ability to show that we can do them around the fringes of the NATO borders. And I think that will be the, the context of the operations which the army must lead and which I think the Air Force will have to back up on. And meanwhile, the Navy is very busy. If you look at the ambitions for, you know, lateral hubs, in, one in the north, one at uh, Duckham in Oman to operate in the Indian Ocean. I mean, the Navy's got its work cut out, even with its expanded force for the next 10 years. And we'll be getting on with that. And we'll try to be making the uh, strike carriers, two strike carriers, as we're operationally effective, even though they won't operate together. The fact that we've got two strike carriers and a strike carrier force now, that's got to become meaningful. And Paul, when we look at Ukraine, we saw extra deployments last year because of the war there. What happens to those? A lot of that, I think, will depend on how the war develops in, in Ukraine. It's very clear from the government that we are going to continue to support Ukraine. There are lots of ways in which we can do that. And some of that might have to be in ways that don't involve as much equipment, because as our own stockpiles reduce, then the ability to continue to supply forward will also be impacted. So I think things like training will continue, uh, training in the UK and potentially uh, into other parts of Europe, into parts of NATO Europe. But a lot of it will be driven by the facts on the ground in Ukraine. Well, one of the tasks for the forces this year is getting ready to lead NATO's very high readiness joint task force in 2024. Germany's just taken over that lead for 2023, but reportedly thinks it will have to extend because it doesn't expect the UK to be ready in time. The UK says, no, that's not the issue, but NATO is reviewing its operations and commitments. So what's going on there, Mike? Uh, I just think uh, continuing uncertainties because uh, everyone's waiting for the outcome of our review of the review. You know, we've pulled a battalion out of Estonia, pretending that it doesn't matter, but it does really. I think NATO is right to be concerned that we are, there's too many holes in our force structure at the moment. And mm -hmm. I think the MOD is very alarmed about this because if there is one country that always steps up to the plate with the, does what it says it's going to do, it has been Britain. That's not been the case at the moment. I think it's only a blip. I think there will be a, a push but because of our governmental uncertainty because we're in the middle of a whole series of of hiatus politics um, I think NATO is beginning to wonder if it can rely on Britain in the way that it traditionally has. And Paula we can't end this chat without mentioning the integrated review the master plan for the forces it's being refreshed in the next few months how challenging will that be? I think it will be challenging depending on the level of ambition. Uh, what I'm not clear about at this moment in time is how the money and the plan come together. I'm also, if I'm honest, a little bit nervous about actually how much practical impact it is going to have, because there has to be a general election uh, by the end of 2024. So the life of this particular review might be quite short. 
Therefore, what it's actually going to do practically is, I think, a little bit unclear at this stage. Paul O'Neill, thank you so much for your time. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. Let's turn our attention now to the rest of the world in 2023. And we must start, as we did this time last year, with Ukraine. Back then, we were asking whether Russia really would invade. Almost no one was predicting 12 months later a war would still be raging. Well, now, our biggest questions remain. When will it end? And how? Mark Galliotti, author of Putin's Wars and self-described analyst of murky topics, gets the unenviable challenge of trying to answer those questions. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. No pleasure. Any hope of the Ukraine war ending in 2023? Look, I mean, there is hope, absolutely. But to be perfectly honest, I put the odds at no more than 50-50. The problem at the moment is that Putin feels or maybe he has to feel, that he still has a chance of winning if he can basically outlast the West's willingness and ability to continue supporting Ukraine. And likewise, the Ukrainians feel that they still have momentum on the battlefield. And although they will weather something of a storm of assaults in the spring, nonetheless, that ultimately time is on their side. So in some ways, neither Kiev nor Moscow at present feel the need or the will to make the kind of compromises that peace would require. So you know, we are frankly still heading into an attritional conflict that will just last and last. And where we are now, what look like the most significant factors that could determine the course of the war over the next year? The first and most crucial thing is Western unity and will. I mean, without the kind of huge flow, not just of weapons, but also of financial assistance, that is keeping the Ukrainian economy afloat, it will be very, very hard for Kyiv to prosecute its war. I mean, the Ukrainian will to fight will not change, but nonetheless, their capacity will. So anyway, that's the first real variable. The second one is that we we have no idea just how brutal the likely spring offensives are going to be. If they manage to make some real progress, then it signals that from the Russians' point of view, this war is still a live one. But on the other hand, if they take the kind of casualties that may well be the case, this may begin to actually trigger the kind of political backlash at home. So to be perfectly honest, I mean, I think the key variables are going to be what happens on the battlefield, obviously, but most importantly, the political and economic battlefield. Because we've got to realise this is two wars. There's a kinetic shooting war in Ukraine and a wider political and economic one between Russia and the West. We know Russia planned for victory in a matter of 10 days. Now more than 10 months on, does President Putin have a plan right now? His plan is precisely to hope that he can outlast the West's capacity to continue supporting Ukraine. Then he can impose an ugly peace on Kyiv. To be honest, I think Putin is wrong. I think there's no real signs of the kind of fragmentation of Western unity that he would need. He believes this for two reasons. One is because he does think that we in the West are flabby hypocrites who can't actually maintain costs for any length of time. But also he believes this because he has to believe it. It's his last chance of, of victory. So I think this is this is unfortunately the problem. So long as he thinks that any day now, we're going to start seeing cracks in the West, he's tempted to hang on just a bit longer. Ultimately, though, as I said, I, th I think that, that he will find himself forced into some kind of a deal simply because of Ukrainian progress on the battlefield. And the Western layman's view is that it's very much Vladimir Putin's war and he's being damaged by it. Could he be toppled in 2023? How precarious is his position right now? I think his position is actually very strong, but, but increasingly brittle. 
it's fine until it faces some kind of serious challenge. If something happens, let's say, you know, a cascading economic collapse that rolls through the Russian regions, or indeed serious ill health on the part of Putin, that's when we might well see actually some kind of real pressure against him. But barring that, look, these kind of regimes, if you look at places like Iran, can last for years. So we shouldn't be assuming that Putin will be going soon. And what do you think is the greater threat to Vladimir Putin? Is it opposition to the Ukraine war or critics who think he's not getting it right? This is the interesting thing. This is what we've really seen in in this past year is the rise of what we could call a sort of a, a patriotic, quote unquote, opposition to Putin. That there are increasingly people, and although they're not a majority by any means, they're significant because they're disproportionately drawn from the military, from the security forces and so forth, who essentially did not have a problem with invading Ukraine, but had a problem with just how damn badly it was done. And I think if it becomes clear that Putin has no new answers and he cannot offer any kind of real pathway to victory, these are the people who might well be saying, look, it is now our patriotic duty Whereas once we supported Putin, now to oppose him, they're not the big name figures. They're not the, the, the generals of the security apparatus or the military. They're the colonels. They're the lieutenant colonels. They're the people who are actually involved in the war, who know what's going on and who are getting increasingly fed up. And I, said, I, I really don't think these are the people who are going to topple Putin. But it does mean that if push comes to shove, Putin cannot assume, as he has always been in, in the past, that he will have the men with guns, the men in uniforms behind him, they may well actually decide that now it's it's the time to actually see some new leadership. Mark Galeotti, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Always a pleasure. Professor Michael Clark, let's just go back to the battlefields in Ukraine. What can we expect in the fighting over the next few months or the whole year, if you're brave enough to predict that? Well, I'll go for the first six months of the year. So I think the Ukrainians will keep on pushing. The Russians are playing for time until, as Mark was saying, there will be spring offensives on both sides. Both sides are now preparing for the other side of the winter. The Ukrainians are trying to build up their longer range offensive capabilities. They need more main battle tanks. They need more artillery, more multiple launch rockets. And the Russians are building up their armed forces. About 200,000 of them are training in Russia, 100,000 maybe somewhere on the battlefield in Ukraine. Those 200,000 won't all go to Ukraine because, remember, Russia's got lots of other commitments that it's it's pulled troops out of lots of other areas to send them to Ukraine. So it needs to, um, as it were, recover some of the forces that it's got in, in other areas that matter to it. But a, a big number of those 200,000 undoubtedly will go to Ukraine as formed units. And we'll see in the other side of the winter the so-called spring offensives. The Ukrainians will have one, the Russians will have one. As they, as they play out, that will create a new reality on the ground. And whatever happens in the summer and autumn of next year will be derivative of whatever that new situation on the ground happens to be. And you mentioned uh, Ukraine's critical need for more equipment. We've heard and said time again, time and time again, that Western support for Ukraine has been absolutely pivotal. Can that hold up for another 12 months or will Ukraine fatigue eat into that resolve? Well, I think Ukraine fatigue is certainly um, an issue, but it hasn't made a big difference so far. And that fatigue is more in the in the press and public opinion in Western Europe. It's not all that great, but it's it's certainly there. But it isn't in the leaderships. And we've seen very it's very important that President Macron uh, in France is taking a lead 
the French are sending uh, main battle tanks to Ukraine. There's a lot of pressure on Chancellor Schultz in Germany to send Leopard tanks as well. He's very reluctant to do that, but I think he will agree eventually. And so the leaderships are not wavering on this. And the, the, the key point, I think it'll be a rerun in a way of last year. If the Ukrainians are seen to be succeeding on the battlefield, then I think that Ukraine fatigue will hold off. If they're not seen to be succeeding, there'll be a sense that, well, you know, is this helping? Is this going anywhere? And of course, Kiev knows that. OK, let's do a quick trip around the world. Mike's mouse traps. Mike, those places you mentioned at the top of the programme that we need to keep an eye on. Uh, where might trouble be brewing yeah. that we may not have been paying quite enough attention to? Well, I mean, there's one group of places which Moscow needs to pay more attention to because President Putin's authority is declining all the time. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see changes in Georgia, in Abkhazia, South Ossetia, where the Georgian government will want to get back those breakaway republics. I wouldn't be surprised to see another war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. I won't be surprised at all to see conflict in the Balkans, stimulated by Moscow, between Serbia and Kosovo, Serbia and Bosnia, because the Serbs seem to regard this war as their opportunity. And I think the Western Balkans is going to blow up at some point. And I wouldn't be surprised to see real tension between Russia and Kazakhstan, interestingly, because the Russians are making more demands on the Kazakhs. The Kazakhs, I think, feel that this is their moment to move away from Russia, and I think that will cause some problems. So the Russian uh, Russian Empire, as it were, the, the, the existing pattern of influence around the fringes of the old Soviet Union, I think is coming apart. And Mike, we didn't talk much about Iran last year, but there was quite a lot going on there. It, it wasn't a great year for the regime, particularly with pu public protests. So, so given Iran's significant influence in the Middle East, what do you think will happen there this year and what will it mean for us? Yeah, there's a, there's a sort of triple crisis in Iran. One is the crisis of the legitimacy, whether the um, the Ayatollah and the, the clerics can really hang on in the face of the biggest revolt that they've faced since 1979. That's one issue. Then that's also connected to Iran-Israel relations. Israel is going to be much more aggressive under its new government. I think that the possibility of an Iran-Israeli crisis is much greater. And then the Iran nuclear program is going ahead. The idea of an Iran nuclear deal is now dead. And I think the Iranians, partly to distract from everything else that's going wrong, will go hell for leather for uh, a nuclear capability, which I think they will reach during the course of this year. How about China in 2023? What does it do, do about Taiwan or do, does it not do about Taiwan, do you think? Yeah, I don't worry about Taiwan as much. I think Taiwan is safer because of the Ukraine crisis than it was before. And I think the Chinese have realised what it would take to uh, impose a military solution on Taiwan. But I think there'll be continuing tension. The Chinese will continue to try to violate Taiwanese airspace or to come close to it. And I would expect to see some increase in the tension between China and India over the Chinese-Indian border, over maritime relations in, in the Indian Ocean. I think India and China are building themselves up for a quite military confrontation. The last time there was a, a real military confrontation was 1962, um, but I think another one is entirely plausible, maybe not next year, but it's moving in that direction. They mm. are daggers drawn on so many territorial and maritime issues. And North Korea started the year with yet more missile launches after a record-breaking 2022. How do you think that situation will develop? More of the same, I think. I mean, North Korea it, it, you know, wants to wave its missiles around, its, its nuclear capabilities. It wants to be noticed. Um, and as it does that, of course, the situation in North Korean society gets worse and worse. There are people who are literally starving in North Korea. Um, 
I, I mean, rather like um, Iran, I wouldn't really expect there to be huge changes uh, over nor in North Korea, but more of the same. And it will be, I mean, North Korea is a nuisance and it's a real <laughs> nuisance to Beijing. And, and, and because Beijing has to support it, it has somehow to keep apologizing and justifying the fact that uh, Kim Jong-un um, is, is, is a, a very volatile leader, to say the least, and will continue to be so, I think. Mike, you have mentioned so many potential flashpoints in this chat. Uh, just as a final thought, on balance, are you optimistic or it sounds like more pessimistic about 2023? Well, you know, it's often said that a pessimist is just a well-informed optimist. Um, <laughs> but I think it's the other way around. I think an optimist is actually a well-informed pessimist. And, and actually, I'm, I'm a short-term pessimist because I'm paid to be. I'm an analyst. I'm paid to look around the world and look at things that are happening. But I'm a long-term optimist because if you look at the situation in world politics, seven billion people in the world, um, six of those seven billion people are not living under conditions of war and six of those seven billion people are not living under conditions of abject misery and poverty. So conditions in the world in general are getting better as history goes forward. The one great exception to this is climate change because, you know, all the evils in the world, whether it's fascism or communism or, uh, you know, imperialism, if you do nothing, then eventually it goes away. But climate change won't. It's the first example in human history where if we do nothing, it will keep on getting worse. And so we have no choice but to face it Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much. And my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.